Welcome as we continue and nearly complete our series on the Holy Spirit, the Lord and Giver of Life. That's the line from the Niceno-Constantinopolitan Creed. We've uh, many times rehearsed because each of those claims about the Holy Spirit, His Lordship, and His, his being the life giver, both directly biblical statements that we see resonating in so many ways throughout the Bible. Holy Spirit. Uh, let's go ahead and, and uh, pray for our lesson. Father, we bless you and thank you for calling us to be your people in Christ, for raising us from our sin and from the penalty of our sin, for cleansing us in the blood of Christ, and for adopting us into your family and not only uh, giving us these blood objects. of sonship that your spirit produces in us. And not only that, but to know the sanctifying work that we've been learning about in previous lessons, as he not only is the one who brought us to first believe in Christ, but keeps on working life in us, keeps on working sanctification and renewal. And now as we consider his work in us as a church corporately and and his work in us that we anticipate the future, we pray that you would open our eyes to see the things that your word teaches, that you please Grant me help and uh, faithfulness and clarity with these things. Grant us all alertness and reverence and humility before you. We pray you'd equip us, true to the name of this ministry, equipping hour, that you'd equip us to trust you, to adore you, to live for you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, we have been looking again at the Holy Spirit as the perfecting life giver in all of the divine works which are shared equally by the Trinity, the Spirit's mode of operation within each of those works is one of perfecting and life-giving. And so we've studied his perfecting and life-giving role in the divine works of creation and providence and revelation of God's Word and in dwelling, being the the dwelling of God's presence. And we've looked at his perfecting and life-giving work in the salvation of individuals and then last week we started pivoting to his corporate And we considered first the special case of spiritual gifts last week. Today we're on the same topic of the Spirit's corporate work among the people of God. But we're zooming out to consider more generally what is the Spirit doing? What are his life-giving operations in the church among the corporate people of God? And then we're going to look a little bit at our future hope as Christ redeemed people and what's the Spirit's role in our future hope. So uh, with that, we're going to start by talking about the Holy Spirit and the church. And I want to start with this point about union with Christ and with one another. And I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 12. Actually, if someone else would be willing to read 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 and 13. We've heard this text a few times already in this series. But yeah, Lori, 1 Corinthians 12, 12 and 13. Right now. Yeah, The body is one with the members, and all the members of the body, those who are one body, so it is with Christ. But in the spirit, we are all baptized with one body. Jesus is free, Thank you. So you'll recall that a few weeks ago when we were discussing our individual salvation, we learned that union with Christ is really the hub of the wheel in all of the spirit's 
saving operations. Everything really revolves around this issue of union with Christ. The Spirit is the one who brings about that union. Well, what we see today is that this union isn't only individual, but but collective. It belongs to us all together. That's what Paul is saying in there in 1 Corinthians 12. That not only is each member individually joined to Christ, but therefore, because we're joined to Christ, we're also joined to one another. This image of a body of parts. Christ is the head, and we're all parts of the body. And we're united to Christ, and therefore to one another as one body. And what then, according to Paul, is the glue that binds us together? The Spirit, right? It is the Holy Spirit that is our uh, binding agent. It's in the Spirit that we were all baptized into one body. The Spirit is the medium into which we have been baptized by Christ. And in that baptism, we have been made one with Christ. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson writes, the Holy Spirit is the, um, the medium, yes, like I just said. This is important. We are all united to Christ. We're members of each other. And so, you know, here, even when we talk about church membership, some people have have chafed and wondered, like, is church membership a biblical concept? Well, it is, because member is the term that Paul uses to describe body parts. Uh, We might think of membership as like a club, but biblically, it's membership as parts of a body and this very rich body metaphor for the church. Um agent of our unity. So, some of you may be familiar with Ephesians 4.3 where Paul says uh, that our peace with one another does what? Well, he says um, that we are to do what with, with the unity and the spirit and the bond of peace? What's the verb there? Does anyone know? Or you can look it up. What was that? M- maintain, did you say? Or preserve. Yeah, it's not create. Don't. It's not make yourself unified. Get yourselves unified together. But the verb in Ephesians 4.3 is to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. The Spirit is the unifying agent in the church. And so um, what Paul's saying there in Ephesians 4.3, and you see it reflected elsewhere like in Galatians 5, is that by by walking in the Spirit, um, especially as it pertains to the kinds of virtues that will have horizontal relational impact, like walking in peace and love and patience and these things with one another, we are preserving the unity that the Spirit has brought about by uniting us all to Jesus and one another. So um, that's the impact of our walking in the Spirit collectively. And again, this is the hub of the wheel for the church's life in the Spirit. Uh, Just as we individually all walk in the Spirit and exhibit peace and love toward one another in the truth, that preserves the unity that the Spirit brings about. So one of, one of the other implications this has on is on the way that we one another, the way we relate to each other. And uh, we've seen before that, especially when we looked at, at, at Jesus and the Spirit, is that uh, the Spirit is the Spirit of wisdom. We saw that in Isaiah 11.3, this prophecy of the Messiah, that the Spirit of wisdom not distant future, that in Christ are all treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And, and so this, this is a paradigm we've seen before. Christ has Christ, the spirit of Jesus, the spirit who indwelled Jesus and um, empowered him for his ministry and his anointing. 
Jesus in Pentecost is essentially spilling over that anointing to his people and sharing the same spirit with us. So when we look at the life of Jesus, and we look at him, again, predicted in Isaiah to be filled with the spirit of wisdom. And we see Colossians telling us, in him are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. One thing we ought to expect is that by the spirit working among the people of God, there's going to be a sharing in that wisdom together. There's going to be a sharing in kind of that life-giving speaking of we hear about in Ephesians 4.15, speaking the truth in love toward one another. And as, again, Colossians 1.28, Christ is being proclaimed among us with all wisdom. So there's this, uh, there's this rich kind of uh, fabric of communication with one another. We're speaking the truth in love. We're speaking wisdom to one another by the Spirit of Jesus who uh, indwells us corporately as a church. And that should be the activity of the body of Christ. Um, So that's the hub of the wheel. Like I said, that's really the center of everything the Spirit is doing in our midst. But like a wheel, there's not only a hub, but there are spokes radiating outward. So we're going to look at a number of aspects of the triune God's activity in the church that is especially appropriate to the Holy Spirit. Before we get into each of those individually, any thoughts, feedback, questions about this? Just this general point of union with Christ. Yeah. Maybe I could follow up and give you a better answer. I think I preached on Isaiah 11, 1 and 3 a while back. So if you even want to look look that up and see what I said back then, I would affirm, I would stand by what I said back then. Um, any other thoughts? Well, let's look at these. I, you know, sorry, but I alliterated them. So they're all W's, all these different things that the Spirit is doing among us. Uh, the first one we're going to look at is worship. And we've seen... Um, already numerous times in this series that the church is the temple that houses God's glory by the indwelling spirit. So we've looked a few times at 1 Corinthians 3 verses 16 to 17 and I have other references there, Ephesians 2 uh, in your handout. This has implications on inactive uh, inhabitant of his temple. He's not just chilling. Um, The spirit is there doing what? He is bringing about in us worship. He is um, the one by whom and in whom we worship. So you have terminology like <laughs> Philippians 3.3. 3, Paul says, we are the circumcision. He's talking about Christians. He's, he's refuting the circumcision party. He's saying we, true, true believers, according to the gospel, are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So we worship by the Spirit. Um, we've heard already from Ephesians 2.18 that we worship through Him, Christ. We all have access to, the, to, the, to God in the Spirit. So it's in the Spirit that we approach God and have our access in prayer and worship. What does it mean to worship in the Spirit? Any ideas about what that might mean? Especially in light of what we've seen about His ministry, about what He does. 
Is it, yeah, is it a measure of how Im- emotional and, and uh, kind of bodily postures? No, not to say there's no place for any emotion or bodily posture, but that's not equivalent to, that's not identical to by any means, or necessarily indicative of worshiping in the spirit, so no. <laughs> yeah, sure. I would think living your life to glorify God in everything you do with understanding doing God's will. Yeah, so... Yeah, so you're articulating, and this is a biblical principle, all of life is worship. So like Romans 12, to, to present your body as a living sacrifice. So in one sense, our, our whole day is, as Christians is worship in the Spirit. We're, as we look at you know, the walking by the Spirit, being filled by the Spirit, we're presenting our lives as a worshipful sacrifice to God. Absolutely. Yeah, Anna. Um, I've been reading a lot in the Psalms and everything, and I see that what goes on there mm-hmm. is there's a memory okay. of what God has done and what he is doing for his people yeah. and they praise him for that Yeah. so that's my understanding yeah yeah, so that's good. I mean, it's one thing in the Psalms model, uh, remembering, having a heart and a mind that remembers God's works in the past, according to his word, and then has maybe the eyes to see what he's doing to some degree in the present and to praise him, to have an attitude of praise for those things. Yeah, Matt? Uh, might also mean independence on the Spirit. Yeah, dependence on the Spirit. Right. One thing we've we've seen is that the Spirit is uh, is the one kind of, we could say that the end of the Spirit is with God's I mean, the Bible is clear that worship uh, isn't just an outward but it is And so you care about worship and reverence in Hebrews 12.28, or worship in spirit and truth. I spirit there doesn't reflect the Holy Spirit, but our spirit from the inner person reflecting with the truth of God. Uh, and like Anna said, so full of modeling how we worship and one of the one of the things you see is like Psalm really an example of the Psalm 95 Thanksgiving and joy or to like worship with Thanksgiving and joy and just sort of ask you the Psalm that with what kind of heart attitude do we worship the Psalms have a lot to say about it well the Spirit is the one that brings about This is why we always pray when we start our corporate worship. We pray for the Spirit's help. We need the Spirit's help. We have a form, we have you know, a, a an order of worship that's been laid out over the course of the week. We have people planning to do various things, but we recognize that's not in itself sufficient for what we need to do. Uh, we also need a particular kind of heart. We need a particular kind of affection for the Lord. And only the Spirit can truly bring that about in our hearts. And I would encourage 
that that each of us on our way to our corporate gatherings is worshiping the same or worshiping by praying the same way that we're all seeking the Lord and, and going on the way to corporate worship saying will you tune my heart to sing your praise and will you please cause all of us the body to, to be rightly responding to Christ and his word uh, we, we to worship in the spirit just recognize that we need his help to worship as we ought to any thoughts or questions about that yeah Christina I, I often I often pray that God would help me to see his grace help me to see his goodness help me there's so much of that like you know we're called to trust the Lord and acknowledge him and all our yeah and then he'll direct our path that acknowledge that the end of the speaking of is mm-hmm. that you know like you have to see it yeah you have to like be able to articulate it in order to be able to acknowledge it and so that God may can help us to see what he's actively doing and yeah. where he is in all of our ways. So right. Yeah, yeah, the Psalms are modeling, uh, yeah, again, uh, eyes to see the glory of what God has done and is doing. And that's what Paul's asking for in his prayer in Ephesians 1 is the spirit of revelation and knowledge. And he doesn't mean revelation there, new revelation. But what he means there in the context is to reveal subjectively to your hearts what we would call illumination. The the blessings of the gospel, like the riches of his glorious inheritance and these things. So basically we have these truths that we can affirm objectively, but what the prayer is for the spirit of revelation to move the heart to see it. And then that's what that's why we respond. That's how we respond in, in spirit and truth. So absolutely. Um, oh yeah, Annalie. Absolutely, it's a part. It is a part of this broader work. You're right, Emily, of uh, of progressive sanctification, like we learned about a couple weeks ago. That he's on on through the Christian life. He's working in us this renewal, this Christ-like renewal of our affections, our mind, our outward lives, and that does fit within that broad umbrella, not only individually but corporately. Right, that we're that he's the one who's producing this fruit of praise in us. And so, yeah, I think that by is sort of kind of like by the power and by the agency of the Spirit working with us. Let's talk about workers. Um, and as we saw, this kind of touches on our discussion last week of spiritual gifts, this body metaphor that, that so well illustrates Christ's scheme for building his church, that members serve members in the truth, in love, so that we grow up together into the likeness of Jesus. This is the paradigm for 1 Corinthians 12. This is the picture in Ephesians 4. This idea that uh, Christ gives gifts uh, those who equip the saints for work of service so the body builds up the body in love by speaking the truth in love in the likeness of Christ. Now, in one important sense that we talked about, well, talked about last week, every body part has a crucial role to play. Um, there are also some special leadership functions that will have a more determinative impact on the health of the body or the poor health of the body. Of the body. And so we think of workers that are called to, to serve in kind of leadership positions. And, and um, in one important, so Acts models for us in a few different ways this happens. The Holy Spirit is responsible for raising up leaders to minister. So in Acts, uh, 13 verses 2 to 4. 
the Holy Spirit tells the Antioch church that they need to designate and send out two of their own uh, who are ministering the word among them as missionary evangelists. The Spirit says to the church in, in Antioch, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, being sent out by the Holy Spirit. Now, you might think, well, this is clearly a special case. The Apostle Paul was corrected. So later on in Acts 20, 28, you may know of this scene where he's having his cure to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. So that shows us that the picture of Paul and Barnabas being sent out as missionaries in Acts 13 isn't a particularly apostolic thing. It's more the model of how the Holy Spirit is the agent working in the church to raise up leaders, to raise up ministries. And uh, now we're probably familiar with 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 that provide guidelines for selecting church leadership, elders and deacons, based on what basically are the the criteria that those texts give us, just in, in a broad sense for what kind of men should be serving as elders and deacons. Sober, married one woman. Okay, sober-minded, married to one woman. Yeah, what what, what sorts of things are these? Their character, right. So basically the criteria are certain character qualities, uh, certain uh, Christ-like virtues. Uh, But it's interesting if we harmonize these passages, so it's not as though, if when we claim the Spirit raises up missionaries, pastors, elders, the Spirit raises them. It doesn't mean that he's leading us in a kind of a mystical and irrational selection process that would shock us with the results. Like, wow, I can't believe the Spirit picked that guy. <laughs> like, I would never, like, I, I would, ne- I could never see it, right? That, that's not what it means for the Spirit to raise up workers. Once again, as we've seen many times in this series, the Spirit often works in the ordinary. We, we ought not to have a, a, a sharp, um, contrast between the spirit working and the ordinary um, things uh, of life, and, and both outside the church and in the church. Um, as the church, so the church should look at texts like Timothy 3 and Titus 1 and apply these criteria with godly wisdom uh, candidates for ministry with prayer for reliance on the Holy Spirit, saying, and we do this, Holy Spirit, bless this process. Give us wisdom. Make this fruitful. Uh, guide us. And in the end, as we fo- as we seek to follow what the Bible says objectively, and we seek the Spirit's subjective help in us to help us do this right, we trust that in the end we can say the Holy Spirit has made these elders, these deacons, has raised these men up. Does that make sense? This is just a really kind of a paradigm we've seen over and over of the Spirit blessing the ordinary, fructifying, making fruitful ordinary operations uh, of his people. It's not an irrational, mystical thing. Questions or, excuse me, questions or thoughts on that? Uh, let's go to the other, the next W, which is word. Um, the ministry of the word. 
So uh, we talked a couple weeks ago about the Spirit's work ongoing in our, our individual Christian lives, and we looked at this picture of being filled with the Spirit. This comes out of Ephesians 5.18. And what do we say it means to be filled with the Spirit in that context? Anyone remember? You don't have to be super precise, but generally what kind of thing does Paul say? Don't be drunk with wine. Don't don't be influenced and led by wine. Control. Control, yeah. It's influence, it's control, it's the the lead of the spirit. Not again, it's not a lead like guidance door A or B as much as lead toward holiness. Right? Let the spirit control and lead your life. There is another Greek word for fill, very interestingly. That's used regarding the Holy Spirit's activity, specifically in Luke and Acts, which are, you know, seem to both have been written by Luke. And it always, in this case, this filled with the Spirit in Luke and Acts, when this particular Greek word is used, it always points to the Spirit equipping people to speak to God. So, um, I'll give you a couple examples. One is in Acts 4, verse 8. A great preacher in Acts 3 recently. Name do you do these things? And Peter, eight of, of Acts, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, and he goes on with his bold testimony of Christ, sermonic testimony of Christ, uh, at the trial scene. Then, after that scene ends, uh, they're, they're beaten, they, they're sent off. The disciples get together, and what do they do in the end of Acts 4? They pray. They pray for God's help because they're, they're, they see the rapture coming on persecution. They really need God's help to bear witness of Christ. So, when that passage ends in Acts 4, it says, They were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So, the, all the Christians, in response to this prayer, the Holy Spirit filled them and caused what result? Um, and so we, we learned in our lesson on I mean our, our lesson on illumination the word of God lives the word of God lives because the spirit is still saying this to the church everything written in scripture is not just something God said in the past the spirit is saying this now to the church that's what it means for the word of God to be alive and uh, so one theologian writes regarding regarding the ministry of the word in our midst. The word without the spirit is ineffective. The spirit without the word is inaudible. The spirit is the author of scripture and continues speaking today. He, uh, so, uh, part of how the spirit makes the word live in the church is by his active involvement in proclamation and preaching. Uh, this idea that a preacher needs to be, ought to desire, and so the spirit is working in the preacher. But we also, of course, need the spirit to back to side. Prayer and in the hearts of those here. These objective truths, we need the spirit to work uh, in our hearts to receive it as the offer. So both the, the preacher and teacher standing up here, and everyone sitting on the other side listening, we need the Holy Spirit. We need the empowerment of the Spirit to speak uh, the truth. 
clarity is based on the truth and boldness, and then here you just go Um, now, in one sense, we should expect the Spirit to work every time the Word is right. But there are, there are a couple of thoughts on this. One is, it is helpful for us to recognize just rational understanding that we need. We need rational understanding. And the Spirit doesn't the ordinary and the rational. But we, we also we need a person working in our hearts. Uh, again, this 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 is a, a good killer of self-reliance. We might show up to church and go, I'm a smoker. And realizing, like, no, we need more than that. A person, the right person, to do what we can do. To not only give us gratitude, but to give us spiritual And the, the second way of helping us recognize this is that uh, the spirit's works, there is uh, mystery and unpredictability in the degree of we don't always see the same truth. We don't always see the same truth as the word. And we know God's faithful to his word. We know like it goes out and it goes But we also know that there are, if we look in church history, that there are very word. And so there's a right place for pleading with God to make his word especially fruitful in our in our midst. Um, praying for for a a a more pronounced impact, that we would be soft soil that receives the seed of the word like uh, Jesus says in the parable of the soils. So we, uh, the takeaway is prayer. Prayer for reliance in the church, that as we uh, receive the ministry of the word, we are prayerful that the spirit would make it. Thoughts or questions? Yeah, Matt. Um, Philippians one seventeen, we read of those who uh, proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition. Yeah. Um, obviously, it sounds like they're not doing it in the spirit. Mm-hmm. So, um, the word being communicated. Yeah. We read elsewhere about the word will not be turned void. Is the word being effective in those cases? Yeah, that's a great question. So, Philippians one seventeen. There's those who are preaching Christ out of envy and rivalry, and so their heart motives are terrible. They're preaching, and, and Jason preached on this a while back. It's pretty clear they're preaching the right Christ. They're preaching the gospel faithfully. If they weren't doing that, Paul would have nothing good to say about them. Um, yeah, we ought to be careful with this, right? Because in church history, there's been... How... What is the impact of the heart condition of the minister in ministry? This goes for preaching or like the, the ordinances, things like this. Does it matter... 100% hang on the, the heart condition of the person. No, we ought to say, Philippians one seventeen says, God can work around even the heart of the, the speaker. And some of us who are aware of... But then later, there's some big moral collapse, and we realize that they weren't qualified to be in that position, maybe even not even Christians, and we wrestle with that. What was going on there? Well, God still could make his work fruitful.
says something that says, if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. So there's a sense of, you can trust God to straighten you out. Because <laughs> um, we all have areas where, you know, we think otherwise from what God is, what the truth is. There's a, I think, we have a humble where we can trust him to work. There's a lot more we can say about that, but I, I do want to... Christina, what Christina now? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The flesh does not call you to pray. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and regarding our life, yeah, not just doctrine, but our life, like what choices to make, yeah more oriented toward, toward faith and dependence on the Lord in prayer. Also, the fruit of the Spirit is a helpful just ethical test. Like, what direction do I feel maybe I'm being led? Well, does it cons- is it consistent with the picture of you know, Spirit-led maturity, which is Christ-likeness, ultimately, that the Bible paints for us? Um, so, so, definitely, against these things, there's no law, right? Uh, the fruit of the Spirit. So, yeah, so just kind of asking those questions, too. Um, Let's move on and talk about witness. This is very similar to, to the ministry of the word in our midst as a church, but we also have kind of our outward witness of Christ to the world. Um, and actually, that's what's happening in, in both of the Acts 4 cases. This is actually witness. 
I, th- I think that it's ultimately the same. We need the same spiritual power in both cases. Um, in Acts 1.8, Jesus sets the table for the rest of the book by saying that the Spirit will come and empower his people for worldwide witness of Christ. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And that's what happens. The book of Acts really traces out Acts 1.8. The, the Holy Spirit comes and then they are his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. Out beginning to reach the ends of the earth, the book ends in what city? Started in Jerusalem, very significantly the geography here. Starts in Jerusalem, ends in what city? Rome. Paul's in Rome, preaching Christ in Rome. And so the, the curtain falls on Acts and says, look, we're, we're well on our way to the ends of the earth. Now, there's no claim that the gospel is finished in its worldwide advance. Uh, we can look at Matthew 28, 20, where Jesus says to the Great Commission, very, very much a parallel passage, I will be with you to the end of the age uh, as you go and preach and make disciples of all nations. So in Matthew 28, Jesus says, I will be with you as you evangelize the nations. Acts 1, 8 says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. So, in what sense is Jesus with us as we evangelize, as we proclaim Christ in the world? How is Jesus with us in view of Acts 1.8? By means of the Holy Spirit, right? The Spirit of Christ. This is very much resonant with the Upper Room Discourse. You'll bear witness because I'm sending you a counselor. Um, It's the Spirit who makes the presence of Christ near to indwell us. And it's in that sense that Christ is with us as we go out into the world and preach his gospel. Uh, We see throughout Acts that he does this. He empowers evangelists. He fills them, as we we heard about. We see him guiding and directing them in terms of who to talk to and where to go. Um, And and as I said before, we need to be careful with taking, just lifting something out of Acts and making it like a, a normal pattern for the life of the church. There's a lot of transitional uniqueness in Acts. But, but you do have pictures of the Spirit giving some direction in who there's some legitimacy of that, of just the Spirit giving some sense of somebody who's really like, oh, I'm going to Once again, if, if you ever want to evangelize somebody who does probably have a whole time, you say, like, um, but uh, the sense of we need his help, we need his help, and it's also important. Does anyone else besides me get by the thought of going to pick me, I'm not going to know what to say. Um, well, what's the truth here? You are see power in my spirit. And just to go in confidence and go, the, the, the spirit is going to be with me to make it useful to bless me. So you can Yeah, sure. Is it for all or against hand blood? Well, it is the evangelist part selected as some of the kind of leaders that people are given by Christ. So I think definitely there are some people who you see like an active missionary that go out in a very proactive way. Um, that's probably what Paul's talking about. But there is a broader principle of not as, if as disciples, Jesus says, make disciples. 
to and train them to do everything I've said to you. So part of being a disciple and there's uh, yeah, there's there's various indicators in the that to a degree Again, Acts 4, right? They, all the disciples get together and pray. And then the Spirit tells them they just obey. So I think there's a place for recognizing some distinction in terms of emphasis and gifting. But it's not an excuse to not evangelize. That I'm not, it's not my spiritual gift to evangelize. Um, it's, it, it's part of every disciple's calling, even though some of them particularly helpful in doing it and maybe in training others that's a good point too that even though this falls on us individually we are talking about the spirit's work in the church and so collectively as a body we we do certain actions like we we together send missionaries and in a sense there are we're all doing it together right there's this collective sense as well uh, that, that is important yeah. Uh, yeah Anna I, I want to ask a question mm-hmm. um, so obviously as Christians we're supposed to be um, introducing others mm-hmm. right now um, not a whole lot of people in here know me but I am surrounded by unbelievers mm-hmm. Um, one of the questions that I have been battling with lately mm-hmm. is that my roommate is an unbeliever. Mm-hmm. So how would I, I, I mean I've, I've approached her a couple of ways, mm-hmm. but how would I approach her in a way of introducing her to Christ mm-hmm. and, um, Trying to be faithful at the same time as in, as in not being, because I know it, it's not our, our, it's not for us to judge those on the outside. Mm-hmm. How do I handle that? Because mm-hmm. I really don't know. Yeah, and we can maybe have a, a a bigger conversation. That's a great, I mean, a great question. How do I go about speaking of Christ to a non-believer very close in my life? One thing that obviously praying for openings, but one thing. That could be helpful. Is you know, if as you know the gospel, you know that it's a message of uh, God as our Creator, our accountability before Him, and how we've sinned against Him. We've we've uh, put ourselves on the wrong side of His justice by rebelling against Him, and then He, in love, has sent Christ, His Son, um, to be our Savior, our substitute on the cross, to be the perfect man, to live and die and be resurrected for us, for all who believe, and eternal life to those who uh, who do believe. What I would say is any time that a conversation touches on any of that or comes close to any of that, you have a door into the gospel. Every time something about sin comes up, you have a door to the gospel. You can start talking about sin and then God's solution for sin. So there's an art to it of, of opportunistically looking for doorways. Um, that's a little answer I can give you right now. Maybe we can interact if you want uh, afterward. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And there, yeah, I mean, there's a place, like Sherry said, there's a place for training. And we've done it in the past, and we probably ought to do it in the future of training and evangelism here as a local body, too. But there's, yeah. Um, let's go ahead and talk about water. And this is a reference to baptism. I had to be kind of vague, but to keep the alliterative pattern, everything has to serve the alliteration. <laughs> no, you're fine. No, no, no. I'm, no, I'm saying that I, I use a vague word, but we got we to keep with the W's. 
baptism. Now, we can't talk about the Spirit in the church without talking about the ordinances or sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson writes, Both baptism and the Lord's Supper function in exactly the same way as the signs or words used in the verbal expression of the gospel. In and through them, Christ is made known. So the word of God signifies to us invisible spiritual reality of the gospel by words. Like words are signs that point us to something that's invisible and intangible, which is the gospel, what Christ has done for us, salvation through faith, etc. And so just uh, in the same way, baptism and the Lord's Supper are signs that are tangible. We see them, we feel them, etc., that point us to the invisible spiritual reality of the gospel. And like the word of God, they invite a response of faith. They, they, they're meant to draw out faith, to trust the promises of God, to trust what Christ has done. And in doing so, Christ is, by giving us these signs, he is a, a sealing or affirming to us the reality of the grace that he's given to us. He's saying, yes, this is for you. This is yours. It's a gift from Christ to our faith. Now, um, we've heard already in this lesson about baptism in the Spirit. We, we talked about it a little bit more earlier at a previous lesson, baptism in the Spirit. What is the connection between baptism in the Spirit and water baptism? Well, what, simply, water baptism symbolizes Spirit baptism. It's the outward mark that shows a picture of how we've been brought into union with Christ. Being brought into union with Christ is, again, it's invisible, it's spiritual, it's intangible, but as a gift from us, gift to us, Christ has given us this symbolic picture uh, of baptism. So according to Romans 6, 3 to 5, we were baptized into Christ's death and resurrection. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So if what baptism is meant to symbolize is union with Christ, again, what is the glue of our union with Christ? The Holy Spirit, right. So what we're showing in baptism is the work of the Holy Spirit. Baptism symbolizes something that the Holy Spirit does invisibly and spiritually, uniting us to Christ in his death and resurrection. But as I said, too, if, if the point of baptism, uh, and this is kind of the logic of Romans 6, Paul's talking about he's appealing to their experience of baptism, um, and he's saying, um, uh, he's assuming that their experience of baptism should help them to understand the gospel and what Christ has done for them. And uh, again, so the, the right response to the ordinance of baptism is faith. It's not just an outward sign that has power in itself. It has power insofar as it fuels our faith. It's supposed to help. It's supposed to feed our faith and draw us to, to trust in Christ and to trust what He's done. And so, once again, we need the Holy Spirit for that too, right? We saw it when we talked about conversion that the Holy Spirit is the one who gives life, who regenerates. He's the one who brings about our faith. And so, we continue to need the Holy Spirit to make us respond as we ought to, just like we just heard. We need the Holy Spirit to bring about a faith response to the Word of God. We, should, we also should expect that we need the Holy Spirit to bring about a faith response to the ordinances, including baptism. So um, this, we need the Spirit to make these things fruitful in our lives. And, uh, and, and so, again, church history and different tr- theological traditions, some have 
played up uh, or, or totally played down any sense that there's anything mysterious and spiritual happening. It's simply this thing we do because Jesus told us to. Others have, have loaded it up with like, this is how you're saved, <laughs> which is unbiblical as well. I think rightly we understand there's something spiritual and meaningful happening that, that the Lord is doing in us and addressing our faith. But it's not the means by which we're saved. It's, it's actually a sign of the means by which we're saved, which is faith and all the benefits of the gospel. Does that make sense? Any questions about that? We need the Holy Spirit in baptism. Yeah, Jeff. I think for one, I think I've had too simple an understanding of baptism is a thing of obedience and yeah. a public sign of you know, our union with mm-hmm. Christ and all of that. But I think even as a conversation, I see the Holy Spirit being used here, like the word being proclaimed, even like in our testimony in the Mm-hmm. It's a way of like, the gospel being proclaimed. Even. There's so much death to what's going on. It's, it's just a symbolic thing we do, or it's a obedience thing that we're stepping out of faith and aligning with Christ. But it's also this, and it's also these other things. Yeah. See, like the, the ripple of it. You think of the water ripple. Yeah, yeah. You see the ripple. That's that's why you should teach English. <laughs> Yeah, we can, if, if, and it's true, it's a command. It's true that it's a profession of faith. But if we if we are, are if we just truncate it to only that, it's, it can sound like arbitrary. So we, just said, we just do it because he said to do it. Well, why did he say to do it? I don't know. Just, yeah. uh, and there's certain things we don't know about God and his intentions, but but yeah, there's, there's, there's thicker than simply just do it because he said to do it. Um, it's symbolizing and it meant to do something. Let's move. We need to keep moving on. Um, and talk about wine and bread, which again, uh, you know, uh, I'm not making a comment on whether to use wine or you could say Welch's and bread if you prefer that. But this is uh, this is uh, the Lord's Supper, the other ordinance or sacrament that uh, Christ has given the church. First uh, Corinthians 10, 16 to 17. We read this every time we administer the Lord's table. The cup of blessing that we bless is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break. Is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. How is the Lord's Supper a participation in the blood and body of Christ, and therefore with one another? Well, Paul's words anticipate here what we heard about earlier from 1 Corinthians 12, which is just two chapters later from here. That we are one body united to Christ and to each other by the baptism of the Spirit. By being uh, given the Spirit of God, we are brought into the united to the body of Christ. And so this ordinance of the table is a participation that depends on that union of the Holy Spirit. Um, which is why, you know, what, okay, math majors, what comes between 1 Corinthians 10 and 1 Corinthians 12? Any Bible scholars want to? <laughs> 1 Corinthians 11, right. And does Paul talk about the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11? Does he talk about the body in 1 Corinthians 11? Yes. So this is actually a pretty coherent, uh, big argument he's making. But in chapter 11, he is dealing with abusive practices of the Lord's table. And the big sin, the big problem he, he summarizes in what they're doing wrong is they're failing to discern the body. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty nine. Whoever eats and drinks, failing to discern the body. And that might sound like a weird... What does he mean by discern the body? Well, in the broader context of 1 Corinthians 10 to 12, it becomes clear. 
What he means is people are partaking in a divisive way that lies about the union with Christ and one another that this uh, sacramental ordinance symbolizes. It is a participation with Christ and with one another because in reality by the Spirit we are united to Christ and to one another. So 1 Corinthians 10, 16-17 doesn't mention the Holy Spirit, but in the broader context we're informed that the Spirit is the one who makes us participants with one another at the table. It is the Spirit who is working in us. But again, He's the one making us participate in Christ by faith at the table and with one another. Again, we have extremes in church history and different uh, traditions. Some have claimed that the supper is merely a memorial, something that only that we are doing. We are remembering Christ's death for us. It certainly is a memorial. Jesus says to do it in remembrance of me. On the other hand, you have the Roman Catholic view transubstantiation, which says that Christ's body becomes really and, and uh, physically present because the substance of the bread and wine change into the substance of Christ's body um, and blood. The Bible teaches that the supper is more than merely a memorial. It is a memorial, but it's more than that. But it's also not the bodily presence of Christ. The bread and wine don't change into anything else. Rather, it is the spiritual presence of Christ. By means, and by spiritual, what I mean is by the Holy Spirit. <laughs> spiritual doesn't just mean vaguely mystical. We kind of use the word that way in our culture. Spiritual means of the Spirit. It is communing with Christ in the Spirit. It's participating with Christ in the Spirit. As the Spirit, again, brings the promises and the hidden reality of the gospel into our hearts, uh, to our faith, by means of the, 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 the tangible elements of the bread and the fruit of the vine. So, any thoughts about that? The, the, the Spirit's work in our uh, communion in the Lord's table. Yeah, Jim. But when Jesus, when Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, isn't he talking about the cross? Yes. I mean, isn't, isn't the whole thing, the Lord's Supper, doesn't all go back to the cross? Is it that does. Is saying, do this in remembrance of me, in remembrance of what I did yeah. for you? Yeah, yeah, the, yes, it is. The remembrance of me is, I think, specific to the cross, although it's him, the person of Jesus, doing what he did at the cross. Uh, but yeah, it's not just Jesus in general. It is, it, it's, it's the cross. It's his death. Because of remember the cross, or do I have that wrong as far as that word goes? No, I don't. I don't think it's wrong. I think remembrance of me specifically what I'm about to do for you and going to the cross. I, I believe that's the sense there. Yeah, and all its implications. The the, the wine he said the new covenant. So this the effect of the cross. What what the cross accomplishes. Yeah. Uh, Right. Yeah. Uh, as you alluded to, it's a remembrance of him in, in the fullest who he is and what he accomplishes at the cross, but him as the one sent from the Father mm-hmm. in the power of the Holy Spirit. So it's it's comprehensive of all of God's saving redeeming. Yeah, of which the cross is kind of the apex and center. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And then Rhonda, do you have... Well, I always have uh, questions in my mind about the connection with this this conversation that mm-hmm. Jesus had was at the Passover. Mm-hmm. And the Passover supper yeah. was all about remembering the Exodus yeah. and the deliverance of the people yeah. from slavery and they remembered the, the lambs that were slain mm-hmm. and the blood mm-hmm. and the ate the bread. So unless you're reading something about Passover and the Jews around Passover time, which mm-hmm. I, I like to do, but uh, we don't talk about that Mm-hmm. Any church I've ever been to mm-hmm. has mm-hmm. addressed that in any um, 
this goes back farther than just right, right. Back to the whole nation of Israel. So how how would you enter? No, I just affirm that absolutely. The the the, the upper room is definitely a re kind of a new covenant remix of that very thing. That's what they were celebrating at Passover was a lamb was slain to save us from the the, the judgment of God. And, and associated with that event was our exodus, our deliverance from bondage, and the Lord establishing a covenant with us. That's what's going on there in Exodus. And that's that's why when he says, this this is my, my body given for you, we're thinking of the lamb. When he says, for the new covenant, the blood of the new covenant, we're thinking of that shape of deliverance covenant, uh, salvation into this new relationship with the Lord. For all those people, every year would be like, oh, this isn't just about then. This yeah. Mm-hmm. It was our Passover lamb. Mm-hmm. And I think that was part of the imagery. Right? Is yeah, Paul uses that very term. He is our Passover, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Amen. Eric, yeah, refresh or help clarify this for me. We we hold that the bread and the cup is not merely just a symbolic act, but there is something uniquely mystical about the event. Not in, mm-hmm. in the sense that God's presence is God's is is present more so in a significant way or a different way to bless or to mm-hmm. have potentially curse. Mm-hmm. Um, it, 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 this question, not yeah, David, but but I think it is more than just this sort of a Zwingli symbolic yeah. act, but there's something special about the event in terms of God's presence. It's yes, mystical, it's a mystical event. right, and whether it's mystical or spiritual, yeah, the idea is there's something invisible and spiritual and real happening that's more than just a psychological state. Right, it's not just a material activity where we take a material thing in our body and think a certain thing. That's that's a merely memorial, and we we say yes, we're doing that. But Christ, the question is, is Christ doing something too when we do that? And the answer is yes, He is communing with us in the Spirit. There is something more than simply a horizontal activity that we're doing. And just having a meal somewhere, mm-hmm. eating, drinking, and remembering Christ. Mm-hmm. There is something significant, actually mm-hmm. mystical happening. Mm-hmm. I would say that, yeah. Context. I would, I would, yeah. yeah. Um, well, for the sake of time, we're going to move on. I love the interaction, and again, we can. If you have questions or interactions with me after, I'd love to be be a resource to you. But let's go ahead and talk about the Holy Spirit in the future briefly. Um, just the first, the first thing um, to point out here is that you know that. When we talk about the future or the last days, um, we tend to think immediately of like events surrounding the very end, the return of Christ. We think of like tribulation and and the millennium, things like this, uh, which are things addressed in the Bible. But in in the New Testament terminology, the last days began at Pentecost. That's an important just biblical principle. The last days began at Pentecost. That's exactly what Peter. Remember what Peter steps up and he he interprets this moment of the the tongues and, and all this. What does he say? He says, um, this is what Joel said uh, would happen. And in Acts 2, 17, and in the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. So there's a very important sense in which the era of the spirit is the last days. Um, Some have said that we're in the overlap of the ages, which I think a really helpful model for understanding. The old age hasn't completely died off. The era of sin and death, we're still in it. The world is still fallen. But there's begun also at the same time the age of the spirit which is the last days, biblically speaking. So we're in this weird tension of living in the overlap of two very radically different ages, so to speak, from a biblical standpoint. So we have the partial experience of the Spirit. We have the partial experience of God's 
end times blessings that Christ has won for us, but not yet the full unmitigated experience of them. We're in this overlap of the ages. Um, Hebrews 6 talks about those who have tasted, who have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. Uh, So I think that idea of the the age to come being the era of the Holy Spirit in a fuller sense, but it's broken into the present today. So we do experience the Spirit in a partial way. So I want to I want to examine three connections between the Holy Spirit and our future hope. So we're, we've begun to live in the future now, but things will get better. <laughs> things will increase. The first is, and this is something we've seen already, that the first fruit of redemption. Um, and I'm not going to read all of uh, this wonderful passage in Romans 8, 18 to 24, but Paul is talking about how Light in life in the spirit, we are we, we suffer, um, and we're waiting for the for the glory that we'll receive as children of God in, in Christ. But he says that um, he's been talking about how the whole creation groans under uh, the pain of basically waiting for the redemption that God will bring to to us. And he says, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons the redemption of our bodies for in this hope we were saved so the spirit part of what it means to have the spirit is to have future hope that god will complete the redemption in christ that he's begun in us that the the adoption and redemption we've begun to taste will experience in their fullness Um, and the whole creation is groaning under the curse of sin and the whole creation is waiting to be wrapped up in the in that consummating work of redemption that christ will bring to us god's people so it has impact on the church, on us, but also it'll it'll wrap the whole created order into it. That doesn't mean everyone's saved. Uh, it's not universalism, but it just means that everything will be renewed by by Christ's return. And so this picture, we ha- we are Christians, those who have the first fruits of the Spirit, meaning the very beginning of the harvest. We have the very beginning of the harvest in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. It's like when you go to Costco and you get that free sample. And you're like, mm, I'm going to buy a big pack of this, right? Like, we're tasting that free sample right now, but there's a whole lot more that's coming. There's a whole lot more enjoyment to come. But we're in this place of in-between waiting and groaning with eager expectation. So that's the era we live in today in, in enjoying the Holy Spirit. Um, questions or thoughts about that? We'll talk about resurrection and glorification. Um, it's not only the Spirit giving us hope today, but the Spirit is going to be very involved in that future hope over to us. So, our resurrection and glorification in 1 Corinthians 15, 42-49. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown in natural body, it is raised in a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. What spiritual means in the testament is the Holy Spirit. It doesn't mean not physical. Uh, thus it is written, the first man out of the world But it is not the spirit as was the man of and as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. 
Just as we have borne the image, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Who's the man of dust? Adam. Who's the man of heaven? Jesus, the last Adam. Okay, you're tracking. You're tracking with Paul. But he's saying, and there's a lot. This is a big, intricate passage. But essentially, our resurrection will follow the temple of Christ, who's the last Adam. The body will be sown like a seed, perishable, dishonored, weak, natural, earthly. And what rises will be imperishable, glorious, spiritual, powerful, and heavenly. It will not be any less physical, but it will be spiritual. It will be of the spirit. That's what that is. he's implied here in this word spiritual many times in this passage. It is a body appropriate to the world of the spirit who is the agent of its transformation. So, we have the Spirit now indwelling us, right? In one sense, we are we are houses of God's glory and the presence of the Spirit. But what Paul's pointing to in the, the resurrection and glorification is we will be made a yet more fit place for the Spirit's uh, presence and His His um, is uh, basically His filling us and leading us. Uh, there's an escalating sense of His influence in us from indwelling today into something fuller in the resurrection and and so, uh, like, this is a pattern with so much of Christ's work and the fruit that we receive. From it. We're receiving the beginning of it, the first fruits, but there's yet more to come when his work is completed. And this brings us to the, the last picture that we get in the whole Bible, really, the last scene of the whole Bible, believe it or not, in Revelation 22. Um, so up to this point, we've heard about how we await our full adoption and redemption and uh, we, we've heard about the Spirit who's going to resurrect us and glorify us with Christ. What's the final end of that renewal that we experience and what the whole world will experience? Well, this final scene is in Revelation 22, and the first couple of verses say, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. And I believe that this river of the water of life symbolizes, as so often in Revelation symbols symbolizes the Holy Spirit because the effects are are it's like Eden it says that later on in, in this passage it says that this river waters the tree of life we're like well we're in Eden again we're at this fruitful uh, abundant place that's a new creation uh, John 7:38 Jesus says whoever believes in me out of his heart will flow streams of living water and this he said about the Holy Spirit so that he pictures there the Holy Spirit as streams of living water about again abundance fruitfulness etc so this idea of a river that makes an edenic state also do you notice that it's flowing from the throne of god and of the lamb so it's coming proceeding from the father and the son we could say and we learned about the spirit as the one who even eternally proceeds from the father and the son we saw that in uh, john chapter 5 so what does this mean? It, it, and it's this very symbol-laden, this, this mystery about what this is actually going to be like. But this symbol-laden image is so beautiful of the new creation. Where does all of God's purposes in creation and redemption end? Is this picture of the Spirit's presence and influence dominating the new heaven and the new earth and making it fruitful, making it wonderful. And in Him, all of our experience of true life, of fellowship and enjoyment with the Christ God is completed. And that's... That's the curtain. That's the end of the Bible story. It'll be the eternity of that. Um, and so we say at the, as, as 
uh, John does at the end of Revelation 22, come Lord Jesus, but how much do we long to, to, to be enfolded into the fullness of the Spirit, in our, which again is enjoyment of the triune God. So, we have covered uh, some ground here. We've seen the Spirit's work in the church corporately, His perfecting and life-giving work in uh, our worship, the ministry of the Word, witness, the ordinances. Um, we have looked at the Spirit's future work in us. In one sense, in insofar as we have the Spirit now, we've begun to experience the future, but we expect in Christ for that to only increase uh, into eternity. Uh, when Christ comes and, and completes His work in us, uh, so here's where we're at. Uh, time's almost time is up. Next week we're wrapping up the series with a conclusion. We'll probably do some high level review, maybe draw some big kind of implications and applications. But we also going to have some time for Q and A. So uh, I'll bet you have some questions about the Holy Spirit, uh, and you've asked some and they've been great. But I bet you have more. So. Uh, my email address is on the handout. Please, you'll help make it a better lesson if you send uh, questions this week. Preferably by maybe Thursday. It would be helpful for me for preparation. Uh, but see my email address there. It would be helpful to have some questions to work through. Uh, but with that, I'll close in prayer. And then again, as always, hopefully we'll talk to you. God, thank you for this beautiful picture of all kind of the final culmination of Christ's work for us and in us. Is this enjoyment of you, the triune God, the Spirit communicating your fellowship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We pray that he would have more and more of an impact in us as a church as we walk in him, as we submit to the scriptures, as we depend on you in prayer. And uh, may that day, that future day, be more and more sweet to us and purify even our lives today as a result. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.